to the end of Genesis, Lord willing. As long as I can make it through the sermon, we'll get there. So we've been in this book, uh, I thought it was two years. It's actually been about a year and a half that we've been in Genesis. I went and counted, and by my count, there's 78 sermons that, that have been presented from the book of Genesis, including this one. And I laughed really hard this week. I'm in a bunch of, I get put on all these groups on Facebook. I don't really pay attention to them, but I just get added to a bunch. Um, and one of them is for young pastors. And one of the questions one of the young pastors asked was, he's about to become a pastor of a church. And so he was planning out his sermons that he's going to preach. And so he said, um, he was like, I'm running out of ideas on what sermon series to preach on. I was told you're only supposed to preach sermon series that are six to eight weeks. And any, anything longer, people will lose interest. So this is our 78-week sermon series on Genesis. Actually, it'll be 79. I'm going to preach Genesis again next week. Uh, because one of the dangers of a book this long is we can miss the forest through the trees. We've been just in individual passages of Genesis, and so next week we'll look at the big, broad themes of it and see how so much of it plays into so much of the rest of the Bible. It's important for us to, to get this book down. But I did some math that, that was interesting to me. 78 sermons. If I've preached an average of 30 minutes a sermon, I don't want to hear it. If I've preached longer, this is just the baseline. That means that we've spent 2,340 hours in the book of Genesis. Is that right? Seems like it. Yeah, thanks, Mark. That's 97 and a half days, just a touch under 14 weeks, or around three and a half months in one book of the Bible. And honestly, in a lot of the sermons, most of the sermons, dare I say all of the sermons, I always felt like we didn't get to get to everything that the text had for us, which means there's more. It's a rich treasure of God's word. And so simply, like one of the spiritual disciplines we can cultivate is just simply by regularly showing up to a Sunday morning service where the word of God is being proclaimed, we can edify edify ourselves over time. We know from the Bible that God's word does not return void. Where the word of God goes out, life happens. So think about that. Right, in the next year when we start our Bible reading plans over, if you do that and you get to Genesis and you come across some texts in Genesis, which there's some tricky ones, aren't there? You can go back on our church website and look, and there's sermons sitting right there on those texts of Scripture that you can go back and listen to. There's other passages that we've, I've preached through, that have walked through, that can help us in these areas that are unique to our area and structured for us in Ira. I love preaching like this. I love doing book by, books by books, you know, not doing a whole lot of extra things. I'm not big into the six to eight week sermon series deal. I think we need the Bible. Maybe those guys have something better to offer you than I do, but all I really have is just to open the Word of God and say, this is what we've got. So we'll finish Genesis technically next week, and then after that, we're going to start a sermon series on First Peter. <laughs> I don't know how long it'll be, probably a year or two. No, I'm not that long. It's not a very long book. It'll feel very much different than Genesis. But it's also the word of God, and it'll be very edifying for us. So Genesis 15, uh, 50, verse 15 is where we'll start. Let me pray, and then we will walk through this. God, we thank you for today. We thank you that we do get to gather together, and that when we gather, God, we could sing songs not for show. We can sing songs not to elevate our voices or to make ourselves sound good. God, we can sing songs to glorify and worship you, and we can do that together as a body of believers. 
I thank you, Father, that we come to a text like this and we get to finish this book of Genesis, which you have given us that reveals us about you, about your character, and that helps us understand that there are the other 65 books of your Bible that you've given us. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Convict us where we need conviction. And help us to grow in you this morning. Make the gospel shine in our hearts today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And before we read, I want to set our context a little bit because we've had a lot. 50 chapters worth of of Genesis is a lot of things. So since Genesis 12, God has been working with one family to build this one family up, which ultimately will become the nation of Israel. And so God starts with Abraham, and he covenants with Abraham, and he promises him land, he promises him offspring, and he promises him that he will be blessed so that he can be a blessing. And then God gives Abraham and Sarah a son with I, uh, uh, a son in Isaac, and God reaffirms the covenant with Isaac, the same covenant that God gives to Abraham. And then Isaac and Rebekah have a son, uh, and despite some, and, and it's Jacob is a son, and despite some backdoor dealings and a whole lot of sin that's just thrown in there, Jacob gets the covenant reaffirmed with him, and he carries the covenant with his family. And so it continues now from Jacob, but not just to one son, but to all 12 of Jacob's sons. And there's specifically two that are highlighted for us. We have Joseph, who's the most prominent in Genesis, the one that God uses. And Joseph has lived a hard and a difficult life. He was sold into slavery by his brothers while he was young. He spent most of his life in Egypt, away from his family, away from his homeland. But we see that Joseph was blessed and used that blessing as a blessing for other people. And so God continually puts Joseph in leadership positions, and everyone under Joseph's authority thrives with their lives. And eventually he becomes the number two person in all of Egypt, and we see that Egypt under Joseph's authority thrives. There's a famine, and his brothers end up coming he, uh, to pagan Egypt for food because of this famine, and God uses those harsh times to mend that family relationship that seemed like it was broken and lost forever. It would be really hard to forgive your brother if they tried to kill you but instead sold you into slavery. I might have some trouble forgiving my brother, but not Joseph. Nowhere in the scripture do we ever get a hint that it feels like Joseph is upset with his brother. He tests them. He makes sure they're genuine, but there's not a sense that Joseph is upset and that he's not going to just give them forgiveness when they come. He had the spiritual vision to see that God had placed him in that position for that purpose. A few years ago, I preached through Esther, and Esther has a similar uh, kind of storyline where you have Esther as the queen, and she has been placed in this position for a purpose and for a reason, that she has to go to the king and plead for the king to not kill off Mordecai, to kill off all these Jewish people, because that's her people, and it very well could have killed Esther. And there's a line from the book of Esther that echoes that, that Mordecai tells her, is, well, maybe God made you queen for such a time as this. And what we see with Joseph is God has used his life to bring him to such a time as this. We have the other brother that's highlighted, which is Judah. Very different than Joseph. Joseph lives this noble life. There's rarely an ill word spoken about Joseph. Well, Judah does just about everything he can to run away. He left the family at some point. He's the one who decided, let's sell Joseph into slavery so we can get a few dollars as opposed to just killing him. The Lord finally gets a hold of of Joseph. 
and it's through the abuse, the neglect, and the mistreatment of his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who ends up becoming his, the mother of his son, and it's that son that Jesus' lineage is traced through. It's, it's Judah and Tamar's son that bears the Messiah, the line of the Messiah, the snake crusher. And so we look at where we're at in, in Genesis, and we can see kind of like, okay, finally all these pieces with his family are coming together. Jacob has, has passed away. He's given a blessing to all of his kids. He's kind of arranged all of his stuff. He's died. They've had the funeral procession, and now they're, they're coming back into the land of, of Egypt. And so uh, it's almost inevitable we see next happens. And so let's read verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now please forgive the transgression of your servants of the, uh, of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when, he, uh, when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. I mean, up to this point in the story, there has been no animosity between Joseph and his brothers once they come to Egypt. Not one time was there any indication that Joseph, after Jacob is gone, is going to want to harm his brothers. Not any inkling, no, I, nothing from Joseph would even give the brothers that idea. And so I kind of wonder if they're listening to Jacob at the end of his life, recall all of his life. And if you remember why Jacob had to flee from his family at the end of Isaac's life, is because he made Esau so mad his brother wanted to kill him, but only after Isaac died. And so maybe the brothers are thinking, now that, that Jacob is gone, he's not here to protect us, which Jacob's always favored Joseph in the story. It's just a weird thing that the brothers are going through. And what we see happening is there's fear and there's anxiety in the brothers. Jacob is not the patriarch of the family anymore. He is deceased, and clearly Joseph is the leader while they're in Egypt. And so they're scared. And for a good reason. And they admit it, and it's important for us to see this. They don't say, for all of the evil that Joseph thinks we did to him. They straight out come and say, we did evil to Joseph. We sinned against him. They know they've made a lot of mistakes. They know that they've made a lot of sins. And it's important for us to see that they don't hide it here. They don't try to, to rewrite history and try to justify their actions. Well, think if we hadn't sinned against you, Joseph, where we would be at now. They know it's evil. Joseph knows it's evil. And so their fear is that retribution and revenge are what's on Joseph's mind. And so they come up with, just to put it bluntly, a really dumb plan. They send a message to Joseph. They don't go to himself. They write out a text message. Dear Joseph, this is your brothers. The idea is they want to kind of put this, this idea in his mind while they're far away, right? If, if they're far away, you can't immediately kill them. Maybe he'll calm down by the time he, he sees them. But here's what's not clear in the text. It's not clear in the text if Jacob actually said what the brothers say he said. There's no indication, like we would think that if this is really on Jacob's heart, then he would have said it when he had all of that time when he was blessing all of the 12 brothers. Or he would have said it to his favorite son who's in charge of everything, Joseph. 
Instead, what we see happening is the brothers going, okay, how can we do this? Let's just tell Joseph that Jacob told us privately without him, because, you know, he talks to us all the time, that, that you need to forgive our sin, forgive our trespasses. They use both words there. Did you catch that? Our trespasses, plural, and then our sin. It's this idea of all of the evil that they've done about the individual sins that they individually had committed against Joseph and then their corporate sin that they had committed against Joseph all together. It's all lumped in this one deal. So forgive us of all of these things that we've done wrong for you, Joseph. The, the motive of our heart was wrong. It was ill towards you. Forgive us of all of those things because Jacob said so. And they even use God's name in this. Remember, it's the God of Jacob. Again, they don't deny any evil, but they just lie. And they don't outright say it's a lie, but that's what it is. And that's kind of what we do with lies or sins, isn't it? We try to decorate them up, make them feel like they're not as bad or as as evil or as as wicked or, or rebelling against God like they are. But the reality is it's a lie. Dress it up however you want. But they're doing this because they're scared. They don't know what Joseph's going to do. They should know, but they don't. They're fearful of what Joseph might say. Now that Joseph has all of the power and there's no Jacob, they're scared. They'd be in prison. They might be killed. Which is just, it's just a dumb plan all around. If you remember Genesis 45, verses 5, when Jacob, uh, Joseph reveals himself to the brothers, this is what he says in Genesis 45. That's five chapters before here, verse 5. Now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. This is Joseph to the brothers, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and yet there are five years in which they will neither uh, plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God, who has made me the father to Pharaoh and Lord to all of his house, ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph's already told them, I see what the Lord is doing. It wasn't right your sin against me, but God used your evil for good, placed me in this position, and now the Israelites will be protected and we can be saved through this famine. They're going to grow into this massive nation in Israel, but the brothers just don't see it because they're so scared, they're so worried, they're so anxious that they can't see anything beyond the current circumstances. They're seeing a booger behind every tree. And Joseph's response is so telling to his heart. Did you catch what he does? Does what he always does. Cries. He weeps. Joseph knows and he lives this truth. He's told his brothers over and over again, I forgive you. But knowing something with our minds and knowing something with our hearts is often not the same thing. Their sin, though though on the surface and from our perspective, looks like it was against Joseph, but that's not true. Their sin against Joseph was actually a sin against the Lord. That's what sin is. We sin against God first and foremost, and then our sins against each other are secondary. 
And so Joseph recognizes this, and he says, I've forgiven you. God has forgiven you by God, by, by him. There's no ill will. There's no grudges here. Joseph sees what God is using, see how God has used this sin by the brothers to put him into slavery and to bring him to this place in Egypt for such a time as this. But the brothers just will not accept being forgiven. In one of the churches I, I previously ministered at, there's a, an older lady who, who, due to some tragedies in their life and some things that happened, was raising one of her grandkids. And she was super kind, uh, but she wasn't in the best of health. And so she's a, a 70-year-old lady trying to raise a 16-year-old boy. Uh, this was a while back, about 10 years ago. And so there's just a lot of things. That, there, there's a gap there, we can say. And there was some stuff that was happening, so she called me and was wanting me to help, and so I began ministering to her, her grandson. He went to school about 20 minutes away, and he didn't want to talk to me, so what we did was I just drove him to school. Problem solved. You can't ignore me for 20 minutes. He tried. Over the course of time, we came pretty close to this family. And I remember one time talking to the grandmother who was raising her grandson and her telling me the story of she used to live in, in Amarillo, and she looked at me and she said, when I was younger, I did not live for the Lord. There was guilt, there was remorse, there was regret for all of those things. And so she said, then she began telling me, so we went to this real small church in Amarillo, and as a part of my guilt and my remorse and my regret for, for not living for the Lord when I was younger, I began working at the church as a secretary, and I refused to take a salary. Her words were, it was my way to pay God's back, pay God back for all that I'd done wrong. It breaks my heart even to this day to think about that. Seventy-year-old woman who's living a godly life, raising her grandchild, still regrets and just can't accept the complete forgiveness of God so much that there's just a sense of I have to pay God back a little bit. And if we're honest, I think we probably struggle with the same thing too. We live in a blue-collar culture where hard work is the supreme ideal and laziness is the unpardonable sin. And we all recognize that we're sinners to a degree. I've never had somebody come up to me and say, I don't sin that much. Most of the time, it's the exact opposite. I do some things I shouldn't do. I've made some mistakes. But there's always this subtle and this dangerous lie that we tend to believe and we cling to from the enemy that says, I've done those mistakes, I've done those things, I've done those sins, but I also do some good to kind of offset those things. Brothers and sisters, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not get your act together because God is disappointed and tired of having to clean up your mess. The gospel is Jesus died in my place, and so I am completely and totally forgiven because of the work of Christ. I'm not forgiven because I stop acting up and I start getting my act together. I'm not forgiven because I have this, this massive debt to God, but God is a really nice banker, and he lets me pay these payments off on this debt over the course of time. I probably won't get all of it done, but God's really nice. As long as I just keep making these payments, he's not going to collect. It's real low-interest loan. That's not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus is Jesus paid my punishment in full. And it's a punishment that I could never pay back. 
and he credits me with his righteousness, a righteousness that I could never earn. So my obedience to God is not done as a way to pay Jesus back for the sacrifice he made for me. That's not the gospel. You can't pay back forgiveness. You can't pay back a gift. It's not a gift if you pay it back. My obedience is done because of the gratitude I have of knowing that I could never pay God back. And that God is not seeking for me to. That Jesus is enough, complete and full. And so I'm learning to be forgiven. To stop trying to pay God back as a way of guilt and instead just glorifying in the God who says, your sin is forgiven, now worship me. I'm learning to be forgiven and understand that if God can save me, then he can save you too. If, if I can be forgiven, then you can be forgiven because no offense that I can commit against God is so much greater than, than anything could do to me. Right. So if, if somebody harms me, if somebody does something to me that I feel like I'm upset, if my brother sells me into slavery and I end up in Egypt as number two in command, I can still forgive my brothers because the debt that I have against God is far greater than anything my brothers or anybody else could do to me. What the gospel does is it frees us to forgive others who have wronged us and it frees us to be forgiven by others that we've wronged. It's powerful. It's freeing. Verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about to many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Like a good brother, Joseph's heart is broken for his brother. That's why he's crying is because he understands they don't understand that he truly has forgiven them. They haven't accepted that forgiveness yet. So his heart breaks for them. And so to free them of their fear, to free them of their anxiety, to free them from all of the things that are stressing them out, did you catch what Joseph does? He says, don't fear me. I'm not God. That's what Joseph says. kind, he's brokenhearted, and he points them to the Father. See, Genesis 50 verse 2, uh, 50 verse 20, is a summary of all of the book of Genesis. As for you, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. We can look all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin, and they're tempted by the serpent, and they succumb to the serpent, and then God sets all three of them up, and he's going to divvy out all of these punishments that are going to take place, that God immediately doesn't wipe all of them out as mercy and grace from the Lord. But then God gives all of these punishments out, but there's this glimmer of hope, this just tiny little seed of the gospel that's planted in Genesis 3 that comes to fruition throughout the rest of the Bible where God says Eve's going to have a child and he will crush the head of the serpent. But not before the serpent strikes his heel. And we see how this plays out throughout the rest of Genesis. Immediately, Adam and Eve have to deal with their son and their other son. Sin spreads rapidly, it spreads quickly, and it spreads in a lot of deep ways. 
And so a lot of what Genesis is, as we've walked through it, it's been tracing who is this son of Eve who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent? Who's going to carry the line of the Messiah? Who is the snake crusher? That's one of the questions that continues to get passed on and passed on and passed on. And that's why Abraham and Sarah struggled when they couldn't have kids. How is God's plan going to work if we're the ones who are supposed to bear the seed bearer, but neither of us can have children? Because what you meant evil against me, God meant for good. Isaac and Rebekah have two sons, Jacob and Esau, who fight with each other constantly. It ends up being Jacob is the one who is the chosen one to carry down the messianic line, to be the the one who carries the snake crusher, because what God, uh, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. We see this throughout the rest of the Bible. There are times when the line of the Messiah gets really thin, where the king is in exile. And it looks like it's just going to vanish and that God's promises won't be fulfilled. But you meant for evil, God meant for good. And ultimately, when we see Jesus born and we recognize this is the snake crusher, this is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. This is the one who lives a perfect life and is sinless. This is the one who goes to the cross to bear our wrath, who is going to be killed because what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Jesus and his murder was faced with illegal trials, with lies, with deception, with betrayals, with being mocked, with being spit upon, all sorts of illegal and unjust things. But what you intended for evil, God intended for good, that he could bring about that many people could be kept alive as are today. So because Jesus died, you and I can live. There's hope. Now it felt like a victory for Satan, didn't it? If you can kill the Messiah, it feels like you win. But that act was actually his defeat. Our hope rests not on being good people. Our hope rests not on acting right. Our hope rests not on by not sinning. Our, our, our hope rests not in paying God back. Our hope rests in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. God meant it for good. Verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he in his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brother, I'm about to, uh, brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and carry you up, uh, carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and they put him in a coffin in Egypt. The end of Genesis. We get this just little tag at the end of, of Genesis. There, Joseph ends up being old. That's what happens with time, isn't it? All of these things happen, but life continues to tick by. And Joseph, being the young son who was sold into slavery, now ends up being the old man sitting on his deathbed. Because history just continues to move forward. And Joseph sees his kids, and he sees their grandkids, and he sees his his great-grandkids. And we see some interesting things. 
Think about Joseph's life. Most of his 110 years of life were spent in Egypt. Yet he never claims Egypt as his home. He says, I'm about to die, but God will bring you out of this land someday. And when God does, I want you all to take my bones with you. Don't leave them in Egypt. Bring my bones home is what Joseph says. And so they embalm him, Egyptians, right? And they put him in a coffin. Now, we've read some deaths in Genesis, and this should throw up a flag for us. No death in Genesis, no death of the Israelites has anybody been put in a coffin. All of their deaths, in fact, Abraham bought a cave. That's what they would do. They would put bodies in caves, or they would put them in tombs. They still are doing this when Jesus dies. Jesus is put in a tomb, not in a coffin. So this is something that should stick out to us. In the Hebrew, the word used for coffin is translated coffin here, and in other places in the Old Testament, it's translated ark. So remember, God is using Moses to pin Genesis as the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness. And what Moses is recognizing, what the Israelites are recognizing, is they're not just carrying one ark, the Ark of the Covenant. They actually have the ark that carries Joseph's bones in it too. That it's exiled out. It's, it's taken out in Exodus thirteen nineteen says this, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And eventually, those bones of Joseph make it to the promised land. Joshua 24, 32, For the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, were buried, they buried them in Shechem, in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of the Shechemites, for a hundred pieces of money. And it became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. What Joseph is teaching here is even though he spent most of his life in this pagan and foreign land, it's not home. And Joseph also teaches that we're never without hope. By the time Joseph's bones get to their final resting place, it's been hundreds of years. In fact, the author of Hebrews points this out for us. Hebrews eleven twenty two. By faith, Joseph at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, for much of our understanding of the Bible, when we think of Egypt, we think in in really negative terms because of the exodus, because of all of the negative things that happened with Pharaoh and, and, and so much of those things. But for Joseph at this point, Egypt has been great to him. He was sold there as a slave, and now he's the vice king of all of the country of Egypt, and they have become extremely wealthy because Joseph was placed in charge of them. Yet even because he had all that he could ever hope for in life, even he was a king in Egypt, all of those things stack on Joseph, still recognizes that Egypt can't give me what I need. Egypt can't give my family what I need. This world can't give me and my family what we need. What we need is the Lord. And so it shows faith. That even though times were good in Egypt, and that he never saw the negative side of Egypt, that this life is not the only one. That there is something after death, and that there is a hope that exists, a resurrection hope. And that when Jesus comes back, and we're bodily resurrected, Joseph's body will come out of the land of Canaan.
so we look at this passage and we, we end this, this long but important book in Genesis and we deal with and things that we need to think through and things that we need to ponder. I don't know what you're dealing with this morning, but I do know that the gospel is what we need. So for some of us, we might be wrestling with, with forgiveness that we've received Jesus, that we're believers in Jesus Christ, but there's still this sinful desire within us that feels like I have to pay God back. Brothers and sisters, that's not the gospel. It's a free gift, and true gifts aren't meant to be paid back. Stop trying to earn it. Just bask in the glory of the great grace giver of God himself and worship him. For some of you, you may never have experienced this forgiveness because you're not a believer in Jesus. You're not a Christian. Maybe you've come to church for a long time, but deep down you know that you've fooled others, but you can't fool God. Brothers and sisters, God offers forgiveness free. What is keeping you from repenting and turning to Jesus? Now, God's grace is greater than anything you and I could do. There's hope. Repent. For some of us, we need to hear. Life can be hard, and it can be draining, and it can be tiring, but that's not the end of the story for us as believers. That there is always hope. That this might be a difficult season. That your life may not be panning out the way that you want it to pan out. The times are hard and there's things going on that nobody else knows about and stuff that we're wrestling with that we would be ashamed to share with anyone else. But God is an expert at taking things that were intended for evil and using them for good. Jesus died and was buried in a tomb, but he is not there now. He was resurrected. There's hope for you and I. Trust in God that whatever you're going through now, that Jesus is enough, and someday we will go home and be with the Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for the book of Genesis. And what an encouraging book it's been for, for me. What a, a hard book it's been through some seasons. What a, a stretch and a pull that it's done on, on my life. I thank you for the text that we've covered this morning. That we can look at forgiveness, God. We can look at grace. We can look at mercy. We can look at the cross and recognize, God, that what man intended for evil, you intended for good. And that the forgiveness that you offer is not something that we can buy. It's not something that we pay back every month. It's something that's given to us. That we receive. Help us to trust that you are enough. Help us to glory in you and in the finished work of the cross. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the finished work of the cross. We thank you for the gospel and that it actually is good news. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand together. Number 693. 693.